Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. Forget about Francis Underwood. Steve Barley, the mayor of the city of Blacktown in Western Sydney, is one of the smoothest political operators I know. Mayor Barley was pretty annoyed about a television show called Struggle Street, a documentary about life in a low-income public housing suburb in his electorate. This is a false representation and this program must stop because it's not a documentary, it's publicly funded poverty porn, that's what it is. We stand by this the show. Special Broadcasting Service, or SBS as it's more commonly known, is a much celebrated multicultural Australian public broadcaster. Recently they've produced two shows that have been labelled poverty porn. Houseos, a satirical comedy about life on a fictitious public housing estate, and Struggle Street, the documentary that got Mayor Barley so worked up that he came up with what has to be one of the best political protests I've ever seen. Sydney employees of SBS TV will face an unusual protest when they turn up for work tomorrow. They'll be confronted by a picket line of garbage trucks following the public broadcaster's decision to air Struggle Street, a controversial new documentary which portrays the lives of people living in the working class suburb of Mount Druitt. The Mayor of Blacktown, Stephen Barley, is sending the council's rubbish trucks to SBS as a symbolic protest. He thinks the show is a pile of garbage. Poverty porn is a term that's been used to critique the use of media representations that exploit the lives of poor people for entertainment. The producers of these programs claim that by exposing the hardships of poor people, that these programs might generate sympathy for these communities, or alternatively, that these programs display the resilience and resourcefulness of poor people. And poverty porn isn't just an Australian phenomenon. Benefit Street in the UK also has its supporters and critics, as you can hear in this BBC discussion. What we have in this so-called debate about the welfare state is a relentless, almost obsessive hunting down of the most extreme, dysfunctional, unrepresentative people. However, they're adults, they're adults, James Turner Street in Birmingham is not your average street. Tell me, are you comfortable with the idea of poverty porn as an idea? I'm, I'm deeply uncomfortable with that phrase. I think it's, uh, it's inaccurate and it's patronising towards the people who take part in these programmes and to open up their lives to it. And it's, it's quite offensive to the people who make them and make them, I think, with diligence and professional and with integrity. So it's a phrase that I, I, I actually resent quite heavily. People are powerless to challenge a lot of the stigmatising images that are coming from, you know, the poverty news, the poverty knowledge, the, the poverty stories. They don't have much capacity to actually be involved in those ways of meaning making. That's Associate Professor Deb Waugh, talking about the news stories, research and television programs that portray poverty in post-industrial cities. So I'm Deb Waugh and I'm at from the McKaki Centre for Community Wellbeing at the University of Melbourne. And for Associate Professor Deb Waugh, the polarising debate about poverty porn, which pits exploiting the poor on one side and empowering the poor on the other, just doesn't seem to capture the complex ways in which narratives about poverty and place are created. 
Yeah, well, I think it's it's I think it's quite complex, and the media do get pointed at, and you know, fair enough sometimes. But I think it's more complex than that. So if we're talking about poverty stigma, then we're talking about how the media talks about poverty. So I think about it in three ways. Three ways to create narratives about poverty and place. Number one, poverty news. Poverty news. So the way that it reports news about poverty, you know, issues of inequality, rising inequalities, diminishing inequalities, don't hear that too frequently. Um, you know, the impacts of it and those kinds of things. In a nation of plenty, poverty has many faces. Brooke Corby is one of them. Welcome to Four Corners. I want to start tonight with some statistics, real ones, each one a person. According to the latest figures, 2.2 million Australians live below the poverty line. More than 600,000 children under 15 live in households where no one has a job. Number two, poverty knowledge. Then you have poverty knowledge, which is the ways in which we research and understand. And I think that is connected to the media because researchers are encouraged to engage with the media. The media is interested in what researchers are saying about poverty. That's partly you know, the evidence for the stories. It's sometimes it brings stories into the media. You know, studies are released. Number three, poverty stories. And then the other one is poverty stories, the kind of the cultural production around poverty. And again, that blurs and draws on those other stories. And they, they, they speak to each other in some ways and, and they show it up in different ways. So when we say the media, sometimes we're thinking about stories in the news, sometimes we're thinking about some reporting of research, and sometimes it's things that we've seen on television, like some of the reality TV shows like that have been around lately, like Struggle Street and other, and other things. Sociologists are very critical of this idea that social science research is an impartial objective science that can somehow be detached from the social world we're researching. As a researcher, I've become increasingly aware of our complicity in contributing to the thing that you're actually trying to understand and analyse. So you're encouraged to get your news out. The more you get it out, you're lauded for that. But what are the impacts of that? I actually don't think just giving people information about poverty anymore will make any difference. We know so much about it. Yes, there's little new things to know, but we know it's there. I think just to keep creating mountains of information about it in and of itself will not make any difference. I understand too that we have to talk about poverty, but is it just about throwing stats at it or is it understanding it in other kinds of ways? How do we bring other people into that story making to understand its complexity and its nuance. What is the role of the researcher in that? So policymakers also need to be critical of their subjective position within the knowledge production process. Uh, the policy is also being a little bit separated from the reality in those, in those neighbourhoods. I think that there can be not very much contact and understanding of what's going on. And there's been some people that have been writing about that division, that increasingly the people that are developing policies and working on people are living in a different kind of world. And I, and I do get concerned that there's not a lot of understanding. And I think that gulf that's opening up is quite wide. And, and I see a lot of policies that are kind of understanding these experiences of stigma and, and inequality and poverty and disadvantage in particular places that actually don't really understand its lived experience. And like most social phenomenon, to understand the lived experiences of low-income communities, you need to go back in time. 
One thing that I've understood as I've become more and more interested in this issue and more and more concerned about it is how far back it stretches. Actually, it's got a long historical story. So I, I would say that people have been stigmatized since probably industrialization, that distinction between working class and middle class and, and that kind of stuff. I think in contemporary times what's happening is that as the category of working class experience changes and becomes more of displaced working class, then the potential to be really profoundly stigmatized is intensifying and the opportunities to talk back to it are diminishing. So, you know, you used to have an old working class culture that challenged it, you know, maybe effectively or not, but, but I think these days there's much less opportunity to talk back. And this is exactly where Deb Waugh locates her research. In the space between the poverty narratives that are produced by outsiders and the insider stories that are produced by those experiencing poverty. But there is a deeper, more structural funding problem with getting these communities to talk back to the poverty narratives of others. I often think of Mark Peel's work where he talked about how people, and this goes back to policy actually as well, where people are constantly required to perform poverty. Um, so people have to do it to get funding. You have to do it for just about every little bit of resources that you want. You have to write a, communities have to write um, some kind of proposal or funding bid that tells how many things are going wrong in this place at the same time that they're going to solve it in some, you know, usually have to simplify the solution and amplify the things that are going wrong that kind of already, and I think as researchers, we have to do, we're obliged to do that as well. And um, we have to, these are all the things I need to research it. I need to solve this simple problem. So we have to set ourselves up as this expert that is going to solve it. And Deb Waugh thinks a good starting point for addressing stigma is to challenge the idea that researchers or policymakers are the experts of low-income communities. And trust me, I know what she's talking about. Yeah. Dr. Dallas Rogers is a public housing specialist. We need to be very careful about losing... That's me being constructed as a public housing expert in the media. And in this news piece, they didn't talk to a single person from the local community. Um, you know, as a researcher, I, I think I would like, in an ideal world, to, to see how, how can we reformulate that kind of relationship, which I think is about and increasingly thinking how to shift the relationship of research to communities. And that's where we're going to this, to engage, to connect with communities more in the processes of research, to, look, to go back to some of these old ideas of participatory research, but thinking about how they need to be adapted for contemporary times. Yeah, trying to think about approaches to research that can somehow resist that. But it is hard too, because if you say, by emphasising the things that are going right, it's not going to be compelling in, a, in, a, in an environment when people are looking to solve problems. So do you play the game and then kind of <laughs> subvert it once you've got your funding? Or, or perhaps you do a bit of both. In some projects you play the game, in others you're actually trying to change the rules of the game because perhaps there's more scope. And in the most difficult of circumstances, the experiences within that category have 
become more varied. So there's much less of a potential for experiences of solidarity. So people like, quite a while ago now, Scott Lash and John Urie talked about, you know, the two-third society. So you had this kind of top third of, of growing wealth that was increasingly separated from the other two-thirds. The middle third of this kind of reworking of the middle class in which you had the kind of managerial middle class moving up, but the bottom part of that coming becoming more like the old working class and then in the bottom third being this incredibly diverse cate category of displaced working class migrants that were struggling to kind of establish economic social security in, in you know, after resettlement, people with disabilities and chronic ill health that were struggling to work, the various household structures in which you couldn't, you know, you struggled to participate in the labour market in the same way. So you had this very diverse group there. So if you want to change the rules of the game, a good place to start is the way we think about poverty news, poverty stories and poverty research. And whatever you do, don't ask Deb War to sum up her research in a few simple sentences. Some things aren't that simple. So, you know, I mean, my response to that has always been, no, we have to go and have a coffee or something, you know, because if I do that, I'm simplifying it too much, you know, so. <laughs> Let's have a coffee instead because, you know, I guess that's the goes back to the relational and the need to actually kind of get underneath to understand the complexity. Because I think even just asking questions and being, you know, just thinking a little bit more about, well, how do these things unfold is probably a really good starting point. Mm. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.